We've been talking about awakening. And we all know that we need an awakening in America. But the question is, do we have any models, any examples of awakenings? Well, the answer is a definite yes. There were at least two great awakenings in American history. And those awakenings provided some real change in our country so that it became what we have admired about America. There are also examples in Scripture. And today we're going to look at what may be the greatest example of awakening by the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. I pray that God would speak to us today and lead us to the point of awakening in our own lives. It's a great day in in our history, in Christian history, because this is the day of the day of Pentecost. Now, we can be sure of that because Jesus was crucified at the time of the Passover, and 50 days later was the time of Pentecost. So the, the Spirit was given to the church, and in a sense, the church was born on the day of Pentecost. So it's a day that we should we should look about at and we should celebrate and we should rejoice in that we've been given the work to do and the power to do it because we can't do this on our own but it's only when we trust God and seek his leadership that we start seeing these things that happen so today I'm going to preach from Acts chapter 2 about the day of Pentecost but not about the part where they were where there were tongues that were bestowed upon them and not about their preaching in those 15 or 16 languages that are mentioned but rather about the sermon that Simon Peter preached we think it went something like this he takes the forefront and maybe behind him or to the side are the other 11, because now they've replaced Judas with Matthias, and so they are all speaking the word of the Lord, and they're speaking it to their fellow Israelites. So please follow along as I read from Acts 2, beginning with verse 22. Peter said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you in miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among us, among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, and he's quoting Psalm 16, and David is talking about the coming Messiah. I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy one see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. So Peter continues, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. He's talking about the Messiah. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he had re received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has been poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so then he said, therefore, and there's always a therefore in Scripture. We always need to be looking for the therefore. What am I to do? How am I to respond? Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all on whom the Lord will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt and wicked generation. And those who accepted this message were baptized and about three thousand were added to their number that day. You and I know it comes so easy, it is so clear, we need an awakening in America. We need a turning to God. We need to have a people who hear the message of God and respond to that message and turn to him. This story is the story of the awakening, the work of God through the church. What it says to the church is, I will be among you and I will work among you and I will lead you. And none of us should think that all of this is for us to do and that it's all about me and if I don't do it, it won't get done. 
No, we should look to God for his leadership in our lives. And then we should do all within our power to work according to what God has shown us to do. Let's look at this awakening. And let's see the elements that are present here. We've looked at some of these, but let's look at them again. What is happening here? What, how does an awakening occur? Well, the first thing that is so clear in all of this is that an awakening occurs when we put God where he belongs, when we put him first, when we exalt him, when we lift him up. If we were to go back and look at those first 11 verses about their speaking in other languages, about them taking the gospel, we'd see some things that are striking to us. First of all, verse 1 says, they were all together in one place. Now, it was a worship day. It was a feast day. It was the feast of Pentecost. And the believers about 120, were all together in one place. They were worshiping God. They were praying. They were seeking God. You and I take worship so nonchalantly. Do I go? Do I not go? Is it okay? Will I miss anything? Probably not. And we take worship nonchalantly and we, we leave God out of our lives. And, and then what do we do? Life throws us a curveball and then we want God to be right there with us. We've left him out of our lives. These people, they didn't know what the future was going to hold. They didn't know what they were going to do. They didn't know what life was going to be like. But they came together as the people of God. And there weren't many of them, 120 people. And they are praying and they're worshiping God together. It is always difficult to keep people together. Even the writer of Hebrews, maybe 50 years after this event, would write and say, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as many people or some people are practicing today. But rather let there be worship. I said this a couple of weeks ago. What if God decided he was going to send the Spirit on the church and you had decided earlier, well, it won't matter for me to miss. How in the world would that be? What if God showed up in church and we weren't there? But here's the truth. God does show up in church. When we put him first, when we exalt him, when we seek him, when we seek him with all of our heart, we open our lives to him. God, would you speak to me today? So they, they worship. The second thing that it says was that the Holy Spirit fell upon them all. They, it filled them. And when you are filled with the Spirit of God, it shows that you've been obedient to God and you are seeking him. 
The third thing that happened was that they talked about the wonderful works of God. God was their conversation. God was the one who had been among them. Awakening occurs when we follow that pattern. When we come together as the family of God, when we seek him with all of our hearts, when we open our lives to him, when we invite him in, God, show me what you want me to see today. The best sermons I hear have very little to do with the preacher, but has everything to do with my saying unto God, God, show me your word. Let me understand what you're saying. Impress upon my heart. And I find when I do that, God always shows up. And we can, be, we can find him and be found by him because we've opened our life to God. What did Jesus say? He said, put Put God first. Let him be in control. And all of these things that we worry about, I mean, just think about it. I, I, I know a typical husband, I know the things he worries about. I, know, I, I think I know a typical woman, and I know the things she worries about. But Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And all these things that you worry about are going to be fine. Seek first the kingdom of God. And if we want awakening, it shouldn't be happening with pagan people. An awakening should be happening with the family of God, with you and me. And possibly that's the only way it can happen. These were not pagans. These were not people in Jerusalem that just happened to be there on the day of Pentecost. These were praying, seeking, humble, submissive people who were seeking God. And they didn't know what was going to happen, but they had asked God to be present. And God was working. And a second thing that happens, awakening occurs when we share the mighty works of God with other people and we make him known. And all you have to do is go back and read that sermon again. That's what Peter was doing. He was just, just a little local history. This is what happened. You know this man, God sent his son. He did mighty works. You heard about them all over Israel. People were talking about the dead being raised and the lame walking, the blind seeing. You know about that. And this man of God did mighty works, but you... My fellow Israelites took him and you nailed him to a tree. But God, based on the word of God, remember their scripture, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, God promised that he was not going to decay. God promised that he was going to raise him and he raised him up. Simon Peter was talking about the mighty works of God. And you and I need to find gentle, respectful, kind, humble, submissive ways to talk about the mighty works of God. Somebody reminded me the other day, said, Waylon, remember how you always say you don't like somebody poking you in the chest? And I smiled, yeah, I know it, I, I don't like that. I want to poke back in the chest, or worse sometimes. And, and so... 
Nobody likes to be poked in the chest. Nobody likes to be yelled at. Nobody likes to be told how awful they are. That's ridiculous. So we need to find humble, kind, submissive, gentle, and respectful ways to tell other people the blessings that we have received from knowing God. This week in our office, we had a guest in. Uh, we've been talking with these folks for a long time about, about evangelism training. How do I tell my family members about God? How do I make it clear to them? And, and we talked about doing that and giving training and practicing so that you're not afraid of it and so that it makes sense. And maybe this is going to work out and it's going to work in the future. And if it does, I hope you will jump on it and take advantage of it. To do that, because there's nothing greater in, there's nothing worse in the world than having a friend or a family member who dies. And as far as you know, they're not going to be with the Lord. But there's nothing more wonderful than the thoughts of. When I am taken up into heaven, there's going to be people there who meet me and remind me that I had a hand in their coming to know Christ. And they are in this place because of what you did for them and what you did in obedience to Christ. We have to talk about the wonderful works of God. So our guest told us about Acts chapter 19 verse 8. And Acts chapter 19 is in Ephesus. Ephesus is on the west side of modern-day Turkey. It no longer exists, but it was one of the, the largest churches in uh, largest cities in the Roman Empire and one of the largest churches in the Roman Empire. There was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world at Ephesus, the temple of Diana, a pagan temple where awful and abominable things were done. And God brought Paul to Ephesus, and he spent his longest ministry in Ephesus, about three years. He started off in the synagogue. These were people who knew Scripture, and he was telling them by Scripture that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, that he had died for their sins, and God had raised him from the dead. He stayed there three months, and then the predictable happened. They kicked him out of the synagogue. And Paul took the disciples who had believed and they went next door to the hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus was a teacher. And for all you teachers, some people think we get the word tyrant from Tyrannus. I know that when I was a teacher, I probably was called that a few times behind my back and maybe sometimes beside me in that case so he went to the hall of tyrannus but ephesus was a different kind of place here's what we know about ephesus ephesus they weren't spanish but they took a siesta every day between 11 and 4 no work was done in ephesus strangest thing in the world they'd get up early and they would work to 11 o'clock and then they would take a five-hour break. And then at four o'clock in the afternoon, they'd come out again. And they, who knows how long they stayed and what they were doing. Someone said, 
it is very likely that there were more people awake at 12 midnight than were awake in Ephesus at 12 noon. That was what it was like. So Paul had this great idea. Just because God is involved doesn't mean we don't need to work and find ideas and ways to do things. So he rented the hall of Tyrannus from 11 to 4. Tyrannus wasn't using it. Paul used it. And for five hours a day, probably six days a week, probably 52 weeks a year for two years, Paul spoke the mighty works of God. And you know what happened? The church at Colossae, remember you know that name, Laodicea, Hierapolis, all of those are mentioned in Scripture, came from Paul's ministry, talking about the great works of God. And then when you read Revelation 1, 2, and 3 and read about the seven churches in Asia, they were all right there, and Paul's ministry had accounted for that. What a tremendous example that is of what you and I can do and how we can make a difference in people's lives in working in that way. God wants us to talk about the wonderful works of God and to share God's work with other people. What other people want to know is what we've talked about before. They just want to know, is there life before death? They just want to know, tell me what it is that knowing Jesus does for you right now. I always think about it this way. You've got friends and you've got family members and people who are struggling I often wonder, what would you pay if you could have a peace that was unbelievable and undeniable in your life? What would you pay for that? If you could wake up in the morning and look at the day and be filled with joy, what would that be worth to you? What do we all want? We all want to love and to be loved. What would you pay for that? Sometimes we forget the very real and practical results of knowing God. We need to tell others of the mighty works of God. A third thing that you see and is right at the heart of this passage of Scripture is the fact that repentance is always seems to be always accompanied by repentance and brokenness. When Peter is preaching and he is telling them about the mighty works of God and what God has done and how they had crucified the Messiah, they had been praying for the Messiah all of their lives, and here he was right in their midst, accompanied by great miracles and signs and wonders, and they missed him or else wouldn't accept him. And they crucified, but God crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. And there, to their credit and to the power of the work of God in their lives, they were cut to the heart. We understand what that means. They were cut to the heart, and they said, Brothers, what must we do? And, and Peter said, Repent. 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. No doubt, Peter was thinking back to the baptism that John the Baptist had performed. Because John the Baptist always said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And be baptized as a sign of your repentance. When Jesus came, he preached the same message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus was baptized by John. I would suggest that all of the other disciples were as well. So Peter knew what it was to say, repent and be baptized, every one of you, as a sign of your repentance, as a sign of your forgiveness of sins. Literally, it says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. And the preposition for can mean because of, or it can mean as a result of, your forgiveness of sin. By the way, this passage of Scripture uh, divides a lot of Christians. There are denominations who take one aspect of this, a bunch of them, and, and we come up with different things. And it's not just one denomination. It's just everybody takes a little bit of this to do that. I think we should take all of this together, and we should look at what we find in Acts to see what happened in all of this. And when I look at this, I just want to give you the way I look at Acts. I'm not criticizing, but I just want to give you what I see in Acts. And that is, first of all, that baptism, though repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus, is not essential. But do you know what it was? It was the normative practice for believers in Acts. As far as we know, every believer, every person who is described as believing in Jesus was baptized. Some immediately, all of them close at hand, all were baptized. And yet, I say it's not essential to baptism, to salvation. And why is that the case? Well, let's look at one that most people don't talk about. Think of Acts 16.31. By the way, it is dear to my heart because my mother, in her 20s, when I asked her about the church and about baptism, about trusting Christ, to her credit, she could quote scripture. And she said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that became the verse of my own salvation. Some of you have heard me say this before. Two things happened that day. Or two things didn't happen that day. Uh, the first one is from that day forward, I have never been alone. And I have never been without hope. When I try to talk about God's mighty works, that's generally what I say. Because God the Holy Spirit came to dwell within me and I have never been alone. And as long as there's God, there is hope. So I trusted the Lord. But did you notice what was said? When, when the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? It's kind of like the same thing that they said in Acts chapter 2. Brothers, what must we do? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Baptism wasn't mentioned, but in a few verses that you find he was baptized and all of his household because apparently he had told the story and everybody knew what had happened in that jail. And they knew that God had visited them. Baptism is not essential. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. And by the way, if you want to find one of the hardest passages of Scripture, that's it. And, Paul, and Peter is talking about Noah, and you just have to go back and read all of it and get the idea. But here is the point. He says that Noah was saved through water. I always smile because you read back in the book of Noah I mean, you read back in the book of Genesis about Noah, you realize Noah wasn't saved by the water, he was saved from the water. He got in the boat. And those eight people were saved. But Peter's using it as a picture. He's using it as a sign. In fact, he says that in just a moment. So Noah was saved through water. And this water symbolizes, he's using it as a metaphor, as a symbol, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. And then he tells us in what way it does. Not in the removal of dirt, not in the physical aspect, not by Getting the words right, their denomination, well, a denomination says you got to have exactly the right words, and it's not effective if you don't have the right words. That's not what I, I can't see Peter saying that. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God, opening your heart to God and being baptized as a sign that you have trusted God and a sign to God that you seek to know him and to be obedient unto him. Jesus told us to go into all the world and make disciples and baptize. And then Peter says it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. We get into all of this and we think about, we think about the 3,000 and we think about, about the, the tongues and we think about the laying on of hands. But the tongues weren't on the, on the 3,000. The laying of hands wasn't on the 3,000. They didn't have to do that to receive the Holy Spirit. Here's the interesting thing. The tongues, why, did, why were they tongues? You ever think about that? Why tongues? Why not something else? Why not water? Why not something else? Well, remember what they were called to do? They were called to preach the gospel. And they were given a gift of prophecy and preaching the gospel. They were given the gift that they needed. I would suggest that's what God always does. And he comes, the Holy Spirit comes, and this is clear that the Holy Spirit came and touched them and they received the Holy Spirit. That said twice. I would say to you, when you confess your faith in God, when you humbly submit yourself to him, turn to him in repentance, 
that God comes into your life in the person, the spirit of God, and he never leaves you. And when he comes, he brings gifts for you to serve him. When does awakening occur? It occurs when we give testimony of what God has done for us in Christ. People want to know, is there hope? People want to know, is there joy, peace? People want to know, is there forgiveness? People want to know, can you know what they want to know? They want to know, can I make it in this world? Life is really hard. And there's despair everywhere. And you have the answer to that. We have the answer. Let us share it with people who are close to us. Let us say with humbleness and submission and gentleness and respect, let us give what they need to hear, what everyone needs. I know there are people here today who, are, who have an affinity for the gospel. My guess is if you didn't, you wouldn't show up. Maybe you don't believe, maybe you're not sure but maybe God has spoken to you today in kind of the same way he did to those people in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, you know that this is right. Could we help you with that? Could I ask you to walk to the front and talk with a pastor and let that pastor walk you through how you trust in Christ and how you give your life to him? Could I ask you as the family of God, the people of God, to learn to share your faith and to do so and to, to think through and pray through? How would I tell my friend, I'm, I believe and I know I'm going to heaven. I want you there. I want you to know the Lord. I have hope. I want you to have hope. I have peace and joy. I want you to have peace and joy. Would you submit yourself to God and offer yourself to him in prayer and obedience? And then would you come and pray or talk with a pastor? Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. And at the conclusion of my prayer, then we will ask you to come. It'll be time for you to walk to the front. God, thank you for your wonderful words. Thank you for Simon Peter and his great sermon Thank you for the spirit of God given to the church in power and bestowed upon all who believe. God, help us to be faithful to you and serve you in all of our ways. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.